0: you got your Bibles, open to the book of Acts chapter 8. I'm going to invite Lisa to come, and she is going to read the scripture for us today, partly in Japanese and partly in English. We are reminded in the book of Acts that the gospel is the good news of Jesus going out to all peoples of the world, all nationalities, all ethnicities, all languages. And so we've been having our reading in different languages each week. And so Lisa, who spent a lot of time in Japan growing up, is going to read for us, and then we'll jump in. Go ahead, Lisa.
1: All right, can you guys hear me? Um, we are going to read Acts 8, 1 through 3 in Japanese, and 4 through 8 in English. All right, Stepano no itaiwa, Yudayajin, Tachino tede, Kanashimi no Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city.
0: Thanks. God, would you open our hearts and our ears now to receive... Truth from your word, we give, you, uh, we give you this time. Let it be also uh, an act of worship to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's a, there's a verse in Romans chapter one that as I was preparing the last, last couple of weeks for this teaching that came to mind for me. The verse is Romans 1.16. It says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then there's this little last part of the verse that sometimes we leave off. It says, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. And the reason this verse came to mind for me is because we've been saying, ever since we started the beginning of the book of Acts, that Acts follows this pattern of these concentric circles. The gospel starts out in Jerusalem and in Judea, which is the Jewish region of the world, and then it says Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. And in just uh, another chapter or two, we're going to really see the, the, the big turn, the final turn of the gospel going out to all the different parts of the world. But this verse here just seems so neat and tidy. There's the Jew, and there's the Greek, or the, the word Greek, Gentile, just meaning anybody who's not Jewish. It seems, you know, category A, category B. But what do you do when there's a little bit of overlap, a little bit of a, of a messy middle, a bit of a messy transitional section. And that's really what is happening in this Samaria region. This is a transitional space. This is a transitional chapter, Acts chapter eight. And, and by the way, there's almost nothing that's like really clear-cut, really neat and tidy in Acts chapter 8. It is one messy situation after another, one messy, uh, whether it's background, uh, you know, national, regional, familial background, or personal background. There's all sorts of messes. There are, there are two main converts that we meet. And actually what's really interesting is both of these converts that we're going to meet are both kind of Jewish and kind of not. And I'll explain more about that in a minute. But it's this gospel widening. Daryl Bach, who's a biblical scholar, he says this. He says, Acts 8 is full of contrasts showing the expansion of the mission. There is work in the north up in Samaria and in the south, Gaza on the coast. A magician and a government figure are exposed to the message as are Samaritans and God-fearers from Africa. God is mightily at work with a wide array of people. And I might even say a wide array of messy people. And so the big idea that I hope to really communicate to you today from this passage is simply this. The Holy Spirit is not afraid of messy situations or messy people. Let's jump in. Acts chapter eight, verse one. Saul, Saul Uh, also known as Paul. That's his Jewish name, his Greek name. We're going to learn more about him next week. But he is there agreeing with putting Stephen to death. You heard about that last week. Stephen, one of the early church deacons who was in charge of helping distribute food to the widows who were in need. He was put to death for his commitment to Jesus. So on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and everyone, all, everyone except for the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Here it is. We've been told that this is what's going to happen and even in a messy situation like persecution, God is using it to further spread the news about Jesus. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. Don't worry. Saul's going to get some things figured out here soon. So those who were scattered went on their way, preaching the word. They could do nothing else. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen and appeared to them and now ascended to the Father. What else are you going to do but tell people this good news? Now, Philip. Now, Philip is one of the other deacons that we met. We met Stephen and Philip. We met these seven. And I mentioned to you that we hear a lot about Stephen and Philip, but the other five we don't really know about. So Philip, we're going to zoom in on him a little bit. Philip went down to a city in Samaria. We don't really know which one. And proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip was saying. And they listened as they saw the signs he was performing. Miraculous signs. Things that are pointing to a reality greater than what he was doing. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Now friends... In the first century, the context, if you were someone who was living in Jerusalem and you read that little section of scripture, uh, to us, we think, okay, cool, he's going out, he's talking about it, but you do not understand just how radical that last paragraph was. And it has to do with the history of Samaria. Samaria, you can read about it in the Old Testament, it's both a, it's both a city and a region, Sometimes there's other other names like Luz or Bethel or Ephraim. It it just basically means this area that's kind of up north of Jerusalem and, and Judea proper. Back in the time right after King Solomon, you might recall that there was a civil war in Israel. The ten northern tribes rebelled against the two southern tribes. The ten northern tribes known as the Kingdom of Israel, the southern two tribes known as Judah... And those 10 northern tribes had one of their main headquarters was the city of Samaria. So there's, a, there's an already, like if you're, a Jew, if you're a Judean living down in Jerusalem, you're already looking at suspicion with those people up there in the north because they were part of the rebellion. They, you know, they were part of the, the ones who seceded from the union, so to speak. Now, God gave them warning after warning after warning, but eventually the northern tribes were conquered and exiled by the kingdom of Assyria. We focused in the book of Daniel, if you remember last year when we were going through the book of Daniel, we focused on the southern tribes and their eventual exile to Babylon. They got to come back. The northern tribes never did. And if you talk to Jewish people to this day, you'll you'll hear these references to the lost tribes, the missing 10 tribes, because the Assyrians took them away into captivity. Not everybody, but most of them. Never let them come back. And actually the Assyrians did this thing where they would take other conquered people and they would put them back in the land to try to mix the gene pool, to mix the ethnicities, to weaken the nationalistic bonds so that no one would ever try to rebel against the Assyrian Empire. So what you're left with is this region north of Judea, where it's the people are, it's some Jewish and some foreigners, they're ethnically mixed together, and the religion cropped up that became, it's like a, it's like a sort of weird version of Judaism, but kind of not, it was mixed with all sorts of other pagan elements. So imagine you're one of these Judeans living in Jerusalem, you're trying to be faithful to the God of the Torah, the God of Abraham, uh, Isaac and Jacob, the God of Moses, and you're looking up to the north and there's these Samaritans, and they're they're mixed ethnicity, and their mixed religion, and there was centuries of tension between Samaria and Judah. Like when we read in the, the Gospel of John, when, when, when there's tension between, you know, the, the disciples and the Samaritan woman and Jesus going into Samaria. The, the, the point is this, the point is this. Samaria and, and Judah, it's, it's a big mess, and there are centuries, centuries of ethnic conflict and religious conflict. Try to stretch your imagination if you could to imagine a nation that had centuries of racial and ethnic tension. Just do your best, right? But the point is that God sent Philip by the power of the Holy Spirit into that region to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ that all are brought into the family of God. And so the point is that national or regional or family history won't scare away the Holy Spirit and can't stop the spread of the gospel. Amen? That's that's all embedded in there when you know the history But now we're going to zoom in on Simon the sorcerer. Verse 9. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least of them to the greatest, and they said, This man is called the great power of God. I did a little bit of a deep dive this week. It's a strange line. I don't fully, I won't fully claim to understand it, but there's something in the Aramaic language about this claim that basically puts Simon the magician in the angel of the Lord slot for these Samaritan people. That basically they would have been viewing Simon as some sort of appearance of God in physical form. It's very strange, but it's like, this is more than just, oh, he does good tricks. This is like, he is some sort of divinity. They were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Even Simon himself believed. Wow! God saved a wizard. Harry Potter met Jesus, right? (laughs) and after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere, and was amazed as he observed the signs and the great miracles that were being performed. How many of you know that the kingdom of darkness does have some power? But how many of you know it pales in comparison to the true power of the God of the Bible? So Simon is following around. By the way, notice in this in this passage, as well as in the next, when we meet the last guy, Philip, uh, uh, and and the Ethiopian uh, royal official, baptism and faith happen right together. You profess faith, you receive Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit, and you get water baptized as a way of saying, I'm on team Jesus. Baptism and faith always are linked together in the book of Acts. Sorry, Presbyterians, we love you. But, now, Here's where things get a little bit even more weird. Not only does some sorcerer guy meet Jesus, but things are going to get even more weird because there's skepticism. Was this a true conversion? Was this really real? Watch watch what happens. I mean, he believes. The text tells us explicitly he believes in Jesus. He professes faith. He gets baptized. He's following him around. It seems pretty cut and dry, but watch this. Verse 14. Now, the apostles who are back south in Jerusalem... They heard that Samaria is now receiving the word of God. Like, what is going on in Samaria? Those people are believing in Jesus? So they sent Peter and John to them. By the way, why doesn't Bartholomew ever do anything? Why is it always Peter and John traveling around everywhere? Maybe he wasn't a good traveler. As they went down there, they prayed for them so that the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not yet come down on any of them. this is an interesting thing, little side point. I saw Enoch was here, where's Enoch sitting? Texted me about it this week, back there. All throughout the book of Acts, people hear the message of Jesus, they get saved, and they receive the Holy Spirit. It's a package deal, it all happens at once. Here, in Acts chapter eight, there is a delay. And I grew up in charismatic and Pentecostal type of churches, and this passage was used as one of the justifications to show that there's this like totally separate experience. You get saved, and then sometime totally later, you receive the Holy Spirit. The, the problem is that's just completely inconsistent with the, re- the pattern from the rest of the book of Acts. And, not to mention, the writings of the Apostle Paul himself, like in Ephesians, talked about the day you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So Enoch had texted me, like, what's the deal with this delay here? And again, I just chalk it up to the absolute messiness that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. You're sitting down there in Judea and you start to get word, oh yeah, yeah, of course they believe in Jesus. They've been, they've been yanking our chain for centuries. They've been completely messed up. They don't believe the right things. They don't worship on the right mountain. They don't do, there's all sorts of stuff wrong with those Samaritans. So yeah, of course they're going to take Jesus and they're going to, you know, mess that up too. So God providentially delayed the giving of his Holy Spirit until the apostles themselves could get there, could be a part of this, because it's just Philip. It's just one of the deacons. It's not one of the apostles that walked with Jesus Christ himself. The apostles show up. Nope, this is genuine. This is real. Holy Spirit, sick them. Boom, it's real now. It's just another weird mess. I mean, just there's nothing clean cut in chapter eight. So far, we've got Samaritans. That's already messy, We've got a sorcerer meeting Jesus and now we've got a delayed giving of the Holy Spirit. We're not even done yet. I think it's, the delay is so that there can be apostolic authentic, authentication of these suspicious Samaritans. Now, verse 18, <laughs> Simon. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he really liked that. So he offered them money saying, give me this power so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, if you know Peter, (laughs) what kind of response do you think Peter's going to give to our new friend Simon? But Peter told him, may your silver be destroyed with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. The ever so subtle apostle Peter delivers his rendering on the matter. Now, Peter is hard on him. Because Peter didn't know him from the beginning. Philip is the one that had the opportunity to introduce him to Jesus, to lead him to faith in Jesus. I think that Peter is particularly hard on him And and granted, it's a really terrible thing to do. That's a crummy thing to do. Say, let me pay you money so that I could control the Holy Spirit. How many of you know that the Holy Spirit does not let us control him? We are compelled by the Holy Spirit. And if you ever are around leaders or Bible teachers or people who claim that they can control the Holy Spirit, run. Because that's just not the true power of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who compels us. We set our sails, but he is the wind that blows and moves us. So Peter was right to rebuke him, but, but some come along and say, well, is he even really, is this Simon guy, is he even really saved? Is he really even a Christian? I mean, this is such a harsh rebuke. You have no part or share in this matter. But what does Peter do? Peter calls him to repentance. Repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. What does Simon say? Pray for me. Pray to the Lord so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Friends, maybe I'm just being overly optimistic, but that seems like some sincere repentance. Genuine trust in Jesus, baptism, really messed up motives. How many of you have ever known someone, or you yourself, when you first met Jesus Christ, you didn't have everything sorted out? How many of you have been walking with the Lord Jesus for decades and you still don't have everything sorted out? You'd better raise your hand because this is church and you have to be honest, okay? I have been walking with the Lord since I was a young child. Genuinely came to faith around the age of five, was baptized at the age of seven. And I look back on those years, it was simple, childlike, but it was real. And even now walking with the Lord for decades, being raised in a Christian home and and in, in the church, I still look at my own heart sometimes and just shake my head with fear and with disgust and with sorrow that it's still such a mess in here. Anyone with me? But the good news of the gospel is that personal sin and even mixed motives won't scare away the Spirit and cannot stop the spread of the gospel. Now, Continuing on. So after they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. They're just going around, the apostles. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. So we're staying with Philip. The apostles showed up for a minute, but we're staying with Philip. And the angel said, Get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And Gaza, you might remember, is one of those really important Philistine cities where, where Samson wrecked shop for a while. It's right on the coast. It says, this is the desert road. It's a pretty major thoroughfare that people coming from Africa could get up to the north as well as over to the east, into Arabia. So he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch. And kids, if you don't know what that is, ask your parents on the drive home. A high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. One of the things I learned this week, I didn't know, is that Candace is not a name but a title, similar to Pharaoh. The kingdom here, when we we read Ethiopia, first of all, in the Greek word, it it literally means uh, darkened by the sun. So it is explicitly a black-skinned man. But it might not be modern-day Ethiopia. It might be more where we would call the Sudan today. In the Greek-speaking world, it's basically anything south of Egypt. And honestly, they, they hadn't, the, the, the Greeks, you know, Alexander the Great, and then they hadn't really even pushed all the way farthest down into Africa. To them, it, it was kind of like, I don't know how far this goes. The Sahara Desert's a big obstacle to overcome. Candace is not a name, it's a title. The the kings were seen in in the kingdom of Ethiopia to be ruling like like semi-divine. So they couldn't be bothered with the business of the nation. So the queen, the mothers, would actually do the business of ruling. The kings would reign, but the queens would rule. There's some really interesting connections uh, with the history of Judaism and Christianity with Africa, by the way, some of you may not realize this, but many of the very early church bishops, even people who were at you know the, the Nicene Council and things like that, uh, St. Augustine, the North African bishop, or Athanasius, early Christians in, in North Africa. But even going back into the time of Judaism, you can read about the time that the Queen of Sheba which would be a similar, we can't know for sure, but a similar sort of region as Sudan or Ethiopia, she came and visited Solomon and was astounded by the the, the the wisdom he possessed and the splendor of the kingdom. This is legend. This is not biblical. But there is legend that says that Solomon actually impregnated the queen of Sheba, who went back down to Africa, and now there's a Jewish population there. It's not in the Bible. When you do read the story of Solomon, that seems... Seems on brand for him. Uh, And interestingly enough, there are genetic tests today of people who live in Ethiopia and the surrounding region that have Jewish ethnicity. I was texting with Rabbi Matt last weekend because he and their, their synagogue, their church, has been doing ministry in the nation of Zimbabwe, and there's a tribe in Zimbabwe called the Lemba tribe. The Lemba tribe claims that when the people of Israel went back you, might re- you can read about this in Ezra and Nehemiah. They went back to Jerusalem, and Nehemiah did all these reforms, and he kicked people out. Again, this is not in the Bible. This is legend, but it says that they just started walking south. This group of Jewish people and their non-Jewish wives, they kept walking south further and further and further until they set up shop in Zimbabwe, and they claimed to be descended from the Jewish. If you look at them today, they are, they are black-skinned Africans, but when you do genetic tests on them, 80% Jewish. Interesting connection. So here's this Ethiopian guy. So, he, so Philip is going to go, this Ethiopian man, he's in charge of the entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet of Isaiah aloud. So the question is, is this a Gentile person from Africa? Or is this a Jewish man, maybe descended from Queen of Sheba or one of these other situations? The answer is, of course, I don't know. And the commentaries and the scholars fight back and forth of it. I am convinced that either way, I I am, well, I'll say it this way. I am convinced that he is ethnically both African, Ethiopian, and Jewish because he is making this major trek, this significant trek, all the way up to Jerusalem to worship. He's reading the prophet Isaiah, and in the book of Acts, Luke is about to make a really big deal that Cornelius is the first Gentile convert. So I don't think that this man is a, is a pure Gentile. He's, again, kind of this mixture. Black, African, and Jewish. Either way, he's incredibly devout. And either way, he's about to be the fulfillment of a prophecy that was given 500 years earlier through the mouth of Isaiah. Isaiah says this, "'No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord "'should say, the Lord will exclude me from his people.'" And the eunuch should not say, look, I am a dried up tree. For the Lord says this, for the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will bring them to my holy mountain down to verse seven and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for how many nations, church? All nations. This is the declaration of the Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel. I will gather to them still others besides those already gathered. In addition to the, the ethnic and national implications of this, the idea of him as a eunuch versus in Deuteronomy would have meant that he would have been excluded from full participation in temple worship. But God, through the prophet Isaiah, promised that a day would be coming that, that no more would physical issues or, or ritualistic things like that separate people from their God that all would be welcomed in. And this is about to happen here. The Spirit told Philip, verse 29, go join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. If someone ran up to my car and heard me talking to myself, which I do all the time, and asked to jump in, the answer is no, but this is a God moment here. (laughs) The scripture he was reading was this. He was not reading Isaiah 56. He's reading a different Isaiah 53. He might've gotten to 56. I don't know. I just, I can't help but think it's so close. Maybe they got there. But the passage they were reading was he was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation for his life is taken from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about himself or someone else? So Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scri- scripture. And, friends, how many of you know that even the gospel of Jesus itself is messy? A messy, bloody, brutal death on a cross. He is slaughtered like a sheep to bear the wrath of God, to bear the curse of the covenant for the people who had violated. But then Jesus rose from the dead on a third day, blowing everyone's minds and causing the city to go into an uproar and the people to go everywhere proclaiming that Jesus died, but now he's alive and God has made him the king over everything and earthly kings can just sit down because Jesus is now in charge. The gospel itself is simple, but it's complicated. It's it's beautiful, but it's messy. To look upon the horrors of the cross, a sheep that was slaughtered. And so as they were traveling down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? I love that simple faith. I thought of it too late, but we part, okay, so, Uh, Martha Lake joining folks you have to forgive me I forgot that there's a tank of water back there's no water in it but there's a tank there we had someone give their life to Jesus last Sunday so maybe one of these upcoming weeks maybe next week we're gonna fill it up we're gonna baptize some people and if you have believed in Jesus but you've never been baptized come find me or one of the other leaders afterwards I'd love to talk to you faith and baptism are inextricably linked you just can't have one without the other it's like candy corn and disgust. You just can't have... Uh, thank you, Steve. I appreciate that. So he ordered the chariot to stop. Both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. And friends, it just, just goes to show us that even geographic distance, this man living all the way down in Ethiopia and physical issues and, and those things, the ceremonial Impurity won't scare away the spirit and can't stop the gospel. I hope you're picking up what I'm laying down here. Finishing this up, verse 39 When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip appeared in Azotus, and he was traveling and preaching the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And we're not going to hear from Philip for a while, all the way until Acts chapter 21. He's there in Caesarea. Apparently, he's found himself a wife that he really likes because they have four kids, four daughters. I like Philip. I have four daughters. Man. Now, real quickly, again, Where is Myung in the room here? Myung, this is like one of Myung's favorite uh, passages, one of our deacons on staff, because he thinks this is about teleportation. Okay, <sighs> I'm just going to lay out some evidence. You can argue about it in your community groups this week, okay? On the surface, the reading of Philip was carried away and he appeared might not be the best translations of the English word. The word carried away is like a forceful moving. It's the same word in the Greek that's used when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus. They carried him away. It's a forceful, like, go. And the appeared could also be rendered as like found himself. Like, man, God's just telling me I got to start going and he just kind of found himself there. It's like, you know, like sometimes like when I just like find myself in the candy aisle at the grocery store, right? Like I just found myself here, right? especially the day after Halloween when they got them good deals going on, right? Maybe it would not be beyond the realm of possibility that the Lord literally just, you know, beam me up, Scotty. It also could be that the Lord just compelled Philip to leave quickly so that this man would not stay with him but would go back down to Africa to continue the spread of the gospel down there. You guys can fight about it in your groups this week. Let me me close with a couple of quick thoughts here. Hopefully you've been seeing, even the ending of the story is just messy. Nothing is neat, nothing is tidy, nothing is clean cut. And so I want to ask you, I want to ask you two questions. First of all, personally, are you honest with God about the messes in your life? Are you honest with God? Are you honest with yourself? Do you like to see yourself through a particular lens? And if you were to see the true messiness in your life, your heart, I can't go there. It's too fearful. Are you honest with others? When was the last time that you said, man, I had some really sinful thoughts. I had some really ungodly thoughts. When was the last time you said that to someone? For those of you who are here today or you're listening online and you're not a Christian, you're not yet a believer in Jesus, you might be under the false impression that you've got to somehow clean yourself up before God will accept you. Friends, there is nothing that could be further from the truth. And I just read you a bunch of stories in Acts 8 to back up my claims. If you're not a believer, you come as you are. You come as you are. You cannot scare away The ferocious and healing love of our Savior Jesus. If you are a Christian, you might think whether it's our church or kind of the church in a more generic sense, you've got to behave a certain way, act a certain way to, to fit in. Friends, the people of God, the family of God has always been a messy bunch of folks. Now I am not saying that we sit around and celebrate how much of a mess we are. Oh, isn't it great how wicked and sinful I am? No, it's awful, and it nailed Jesus to the cross. But we don't need to cover it up and clean ourselves up and play some pretend game that we've got it all together to experience the inclusion and the welcome of the family of God. Are you scared or ashamed? Are you a train wreck? Welcome. Welcome. The Father is here to extend hands of grace to you. And then corporately, corporately, not just you individually, but corporately, do you believe that God could do an amazing work in our collective mess? Let me just talk about our church for a moment. I mean, there's, I mean, literally a mess. I mean, there's trim that's missing and there's walls that haven't been painted. There are rooms that like, don't open them because something will fall over on you and crush you, Right? this looks nice. All the stuff that was in here had to go somewhere, okay? But even just thinking about it, you know, I don't, I don't read a lot of like church gurus or whatever, but I do know that they'll say there's a handful of things that if you do them as a church, you gotta really be careful because it could really rock the boat. A merger. Leadership shuffling and transitions. Building renovation project. A move. Nobody says this, well now they do, but you know, a pandemic. We've been walking through five extremely shaky and difficult situations as a church over the last seven, eight, nine months. New leaders coming in, leader roles shuffling, moving. You guys can't even begin to understand like one of those things can sometimes shut down churches. We've experienced five and God's been faithful to us. So let's practice a little bit of grace. Or our nation. We have an election coming up on Tuesday. <laughs> yes, really, Pastor Jamin. Oh, spiritual gift of sarcasm in the second row over here. You might have heard there's an election coming up. And people are saying, you can't be a Christian if you do this, or can't be a Christian if you vote for that, or it's the, d- the downfall of Western civilization. Friends, I don't know if you know this. King Jesus is on the throne and we're part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And what if this incredibly divided season in our nation's history was actually the opportunity where the Holy Spirit wants to show up and bring revival? Are you praying for that? Are you sitting around reading blogs about which state's going to give their electoral votes to who? whomever? Sorry, am I meddling? The Holy Spirit loves to show up and do his best work in the middle of our mess. I'll close with a quote from Rich Plass and Jim Cofield, a book I'm actually reading. I got one last chapter to finish here and I'll invite Pastor Steve to come lead us in communion. This is what these brothers in Christ who I've met actually uh, have to say to us. They say this, living in community is not always easy or pretty. In fact, things may get ugly. The challenges are real, but they are precisely what we must face in order to grow and mature in our true self, not our, not our flesh, but who Jesus really wants us to be. Scripture reminds us that in the midst of broken, sinful, frustrating people, God's Spirit is at work creating a transformed community. God is not surprised by our brokenness. His way of maturing us isn't thwarted. In fact, it is in and by the messiness that God does the supernatural work of drawing us into the likeness of His Son. The Spirit is most active when there is great work to do. Let's go to the Lord at the table and in song celebrating the messy, broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. And let's bring our hearts to him now. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this story, this really complicated and messy story in Acts chapter eight. Would you help us to respond to you with love, with faith, and most importantly, Lord, by bringing our hearts to you, being honest with ourselves, and then bringing our hearts to others. Spirit, we we trust that you can be at work even in the messiest of situations. And so we trust you even when things look insane to us in in our earthly wisdom. Help us to see things the way that you see them, Lord God. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.